Mom. Mom. Carolyn Moore. It's time to start the class. Time to start the class. <clears throat> I know. We should. We are starting late, however. Quite all right. I know how fun it is to fellowship. Okay, so today, Lord willing, we will get through the introduction, and I also have some application questions. This has been quite an adventure with the different stereo options. Okay, does that sound all right? Okay, I think maybe they just had it up too loud or something. <clears throat> okay, so I have a worksheet. I'll pass this out, and then I also have this translation thing in case you guys forgot. And then at the end, I'll, I'll pass out the outline. And I think today, whether or not we get through everything, we'll just call it quits on the introduction. So we've taken quite a bit of time on it already, so I don't want to drag it out for too long. So we will be reading Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, which is the introduction. Does it sound like there's another... Is that from the TV, you think? Is that, does that sound better? Is that worse? Okay. It almost sounds like the TV is also playing. Is that better? Okay. I'm just going to do that. Well, I, I turned it down almost all the way. Really? No, no, I appreciate that. It does, to me, sound like the TV is making some noise. Oh, well. Okay, maybe that's better. Yeah, okay. So somehow the TV was on and also doing audio. Okay. It's always an adventure in here. Okay, is that, is that loud enough in the back, Donna? Can you hear me okay? Okay. Well, that's actually not a bad idea. We do have lots of seats up here. <clears throat> And we get to see your smiling face, so that's good. All right, so I will read the introduction, and then I will pray, and we can get started. <clears throat> One of these. Oh, there's no extras. Um, there are two handouts up here. One is a translation. One is some questions for you. So the questions are meant for mainly for you to think about and write down your answers to in the class. If, you don't get, if we don't get to all of them in the class, then bring it home. It's meant to be useful for you and helpful as you think through this. So I would encourage you not to think about the class as the only time that you're thinking about the text or reading it or thinking through the issues that you're convicted of, but rather to take this as sort of a launching pad for further development um, or further study um, in Ecclesiastes. Okay, so I'll read this. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 1 to 11. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Okay, so I had asked you guys before what you thought worldliness was. Um, were there any answers from that? Did you guys have any thoughts that you wanted to share on what worldliness is, just briefly? Worldliness, worldly thinking, any ideas? You're afraid to answer. Owen? Yes, please do. And that's a good reminder. If you would, um, just use the microphones when you have a question or you're going to answer. Anything that is in godliness would be worldliness. Okay. Do you want me to be more specific or... Yeah, just something like in, in a general sense, what, what would you think of if you say, oh, that person's worldly, what would you think? They're like most people. Okay, they're common, they're like most people, yeah, okay. Janelle? I kind of tend to think of worldliness as focusing on the things that putting all the importance and focus of your life on the things that are uh, temporal rather than eternal and not even necessarily, it could be sinful things, but not necessarily putting all of your effort and focus into things that aren't going to last to making that your priority. Yeah, okay. So focusing on um, things of this world, things that are temporal, things that don't last, things that are not eternal. Yep. Okay. Um, so you can think about that as we, as we continue to go through this, and I will, I'll pray, and then we can, we can get started. Father, I pray that you would guide us in our study of Ecclesiastes, that you would humble us to continue to desire to serve and honor you, to look to your word for guidance, and as we are convicted, that we would change and grow to... Um, reflect you more and more in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so to review um, the last, and this will be a very short review, don't worry, um, the first seven verses that we looked at already. Um, the, the introduction is meant to present the problem that the book will address. That's the purpose of the introduction, okay? And the problem, life is the merest breath, um, is presented in the first verse, and the rest of the introduction seeks to elaborate on this, showing different elements to it. Okay, so in verse 3, um, we learned that the first element that we learned about was we gain nothing from all our work on the earth. We gain nothing from all of our toil. Um, we also learn that the scope of our investigation is the earth or all things under the sun. And that's intentional because, in a way, he's, uh, um, Koaleth is seeking to satisfy us with the world to see what the result is. Could he look in, uh, under the sun for things that would satisfy him and give him contentment that's lasting? That's the quest, okay? Um, and in verse 4, we learned that we don't, as humans, we don't last very long, pretty short-lived. We are also introduced to the idea of repeating patterns. Generation goes, a generation comes. 
Verses 5 to 7, the focus shifts to the earth, and we learn that the earth has its own cycles, which are, which are fixed and are never completed. Okay, so in verse 8, which is where we're going to be looking at to start off with this morning, we can see the focus shifting back to man. So let me read that verse. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Okay, so we see, again, the focus shifting back to man. And this expression, all things are full of weariness. What do you guys think? What are some things in the previous verses that would tire one out or would make one weary? Okay, so work makes us tired, yeah? I think it's the Sisyphean task of not ever able to accomplish every, anything. Yeah, okay, so, so this, the, like the repeating, having to repeat the thing over and over, yeah? Okay. Repetition Okay. And one, like the one other thing kind of comes to mind, and it's tied up in this, the, you know, Sisyphus there, but any other ideas on what might he might be referring to as all things are full of weariness? Yeah? Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, which then he ties man into uh, in this verse. Kind of joins them together. Um, so I, I think it's obvious to everyone, and it, it is tied up um, in what JP was saying, but there's a deeper sense here, not just you're tired physically, but of, of ennui or despondency, that the feeling you get when you're stuck in Groundhog's Day or something, where it's just, you're repeating over and over. Um, not only does it wear you out, but it sort of is draining um, spiritually, you could say. And um, when it's sort of when you're beaten down and you're asking yourself, what's the point? Why do this anymore? Um, so there's that sense as well of weariness in it. Okay, so the next um, line of the, of the verse, a man cannot utter it. Now, this I wanted to treat a little differently, and this, <clears throat> okay. My question is, why would a man not be able to utter something? And this is on your sheet, by the way, but I'd like you to think of it in terms of how it relates to each part of grammar in the sentence. So, what I mean by that is that the subject, if you just look at the, uh, look at the verse or the, the, the phrase, a man cannot utter it. What things about the man would make him unable to utter something? Let's start there. And that's the first uh, section of your questions. Do you guys see what I'm talking about there? Yeah, number two, and then B. So is it clear to you guys what I'm asking there, or do you want me to repeat that? Okay, so <clears throat> I might, you might say, um, if, if you were to say, hey, I can't jump to the moon, tell me what, in terms of the subject, why that might be true. So, well, because I can only jump, I don't even know. A foot off the ground, two feet. I don't. I you know. I don't. I don't know. But if the eye were Superman, that would be different. If Superman were real, right? Superman could jump to the moon because he's not limited. So if if I say I can't jump to the moon, well, that tells you something about me, as the subject. So my question is, why might a person not be able to utter something in terms of his limitations or hers? Sure. Well, 
Okay, possibly. Zach? I can't think of like a phrase that we use, but kind of like, I don't even have the words to describe it. Like some, like we're trying, a man cannot utter it saying like man doesn't even have the ability to like fully describe with words what the weariness feels like or. Yeah. Yeah. There's an inability on man's part to actually do it. Right. Absolutely. Or sometimes when we say like the words don't do it justice, like I can say it, but that still doesn't completely communicate what I feel with it or what sure. I'm trying to describe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so that's the subject. Now the, the verb, and the only reason I'm doing this is so that we can dissect it a little bit more and you learn a little bit more about the phrase, okay? So uttering or speaking, what are the limitations? Why, why might a man not be able to utter something because of the limitations of speaking? Um, we're limited by our vocabulary and the words that we can use. So maybe, I mean, I guess this is kind of what you were saying, but the words can't fully capture the meaning and depth of what he, he's trying to say. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true, right? So language itself is inadequate. Um, sometimes when you're trying to explain something to someone, y you have to draw a picture you might have to do some physical act to demonstrate it. You might have to tie it to something else they're aware of. But language itself is limited in what it can express. Okay? That's another aspect to a man cannot utter it. Yeah? Um, Owen, you want to maybe pass that further back? Because I think the problem is people, you can't see when people are. Yeah, you can just pass it back there somewhere. Maybe. So I was wondering if there... Mr. Olsgaard uh, maybe wants to hold oh, it. Sorry, yeah, Annie. go ahead. Could this also imply an inability to comprehend something? Like you can't utter something about heaven because you have no ability except what's revealed to you, but your mind can't go into the things God has prepared for us. Yeah, you're limited. We as, as people are limited in what we can even understand, and thereby that impacts what we could utter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, now let's shift it slightly to just the thing that's being talked about. Okay, so a man cannot utter it. What might be the limitations that are put on our utterances because of the thing we're trying to utter. Does that make sense? <clears throat> it, the, the, it, 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 they're all sort of related in the sense that they're overlapping, but they are different, right? One is man is limited in what he can understand and what he can process and communicate. The means of speaking is also limited, and so that limits what he can say. But also, what is being what he seeks to communicate might be what? Why, why, how might the thing that's being communicated um, add to the truth of the statement, a man cannot utter it? So the statement, a man cannot, uh, all things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it, speaks to the limitations of man to some degree. It also speaks to the limitations of speech and his means of communication. It also speaks to some degree of the thing that he's trying to speak of. So how might the thing that he's trying to speak of limited in this case. I think it's because we don't have any comparison to it, right? Um, we know that God is self-sustaining, so there is a certain self-satisfaction that God has, right? He didn't have to create anything. He was self-satisfied with the, within the Trinity. Man is not self-satisfying, self-sustaining, so we on 
constantly need to seek sustenance. And so that's, I think, the it there is we just don't have anything to compare it to. Okay, so, it, I mean, the, some, the way that we do understand things, and to some degree, is how our, our knowledge base is built up as we start with something and then kind of compare it as like this and then grow from there. And so what I hear you saying, JP, is that there's nothing that um, like this that we can really compare it to, okay? That's true. Um, another thing that might make it true is that it's too much to express. The thing itself is too big. It's too massive. It's too complex. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yes. No, thank you. I hope you didn't direct that at me. Yeah. <laughs> Time I had to teach a new subject, and I, I felt inadequate because I didn't know enough to know what questions to ask about it. Yes. And, you know, you always hear, too dumb to know what to ask. Yeah. And that's exactly how I felt yep. until I got into it. <laughs> Excellent. No, that's a good point. So the sometimes the thing maybe that we're trying to express is too much for us, or we just simply don't understand it. Okay. So that I wanted to point that out because all three of those elements are in play here. Okay. Um, and as we move to the next part uh, of the verse, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. If we take this same principle and apply it to the eye, we could see the eye is not capable of bringing in enough to satisfy us. We learn that uh, we have a desire and a longing to be satisfied partly to JP's point, at least implicit in it, is we are made with this longing. We are made with this desire, uh, but our eye is not designed to be satisfied, but to continually search, okay? Um, and we, so from that, you could learn we will never see something, and these are true statements, I think, so I'm just making them because I think they're self-explanatory. We'll never see something which satisfies us so that we don't need or want to see anything else. So soon after seeing something amazing, we're ready for something else. Um, we always want something new, and the satisfaction that we do feel doesn't last very long. Okay? Um, similar idea with the ear. We have uh, nor the ear filled with hearing. The ear is not capable of bringing in enough to fill us. Um, we are not filled, meaning we have a desire to be filled and completed, but the ear isn't capable of being filled. And hearing what we hear cannot fill us. So the sound of rain, the ocean, the birds, the wind and the trees are all beautiful sounds, but they don't give any lasting fulfillment. Um, so we are never full, just as the sea. We'll never have enough. We will always want more. We'll never be filled or completed or remain in a state where we don't want any more for very long. And this speaks to our need to be satisfied we don't really want this continuous cycle, right? We want stability. We want something that, that lasts. We want to be satisfied. Um, so that, but that is what you could say the advertising industry plays on. So that Apple product cycle, right? You have probably several iPhones at home that are sitting there like they're trash because they continually bring something new out, and we always buy it, partly because we want it, but partly because we're forced to because they're, you know, making them obsolete. But nevertheless, 
we continually want that thing, right? So we look at it and it's like, ooh, more power and a better phone and more storage and whatever. Okay, so, um, so one, it speaks to our desire or need to be satisfied, but it also speaks to the unfulfilling nature of earth, right? That it's not big enough to fill us or complete us or satisfy us. And that should, I mean, what does that, that fact make you long for or desire or think about? This will have to be quick. Um, Ms. Erlsgar, would you like to give a stab at that since you have the mic? I mean, if you're told, hey, you have a desire to be satisfied, but what you're looking at around you can't possibly do that, what is the next step in that sequence? Yeah. So I think you can see that in the New Testament with kind of several interactions with Jesus, right? You've got the woman at the well, give me this water, this living water, Peter going, you've the words of eternal life, you know. So I think the realization is that there needs to be an external, there's a, what C.S. Lewis said, a God-shaped hole, right? That you're trying to fill. Yeah. Yeah, it makes you long for the thing that would satisfy you, which is God, right? Nothing on this earth can, and yet you have this desire. What do you do? Well, you have to look somewhere else. You have to find something that will satisfy you, which, of course, points you to heaven points you to Christ, points you to God. Um, and that's really a fascinating approach that Solomon's taking, is he's not telling you how great God is. He's just showing you, hey, here's what you're like, here's what the earth is like, and that sort of inevitably points you to your need for God, uh, which is why he doesn't even bother to mention him so far, because he's creating in you that recognition and that desire. Okay, I'm going to read Ginsburg's translation. That's the one on the top. Um, because I think he does an excellent job of phrasing it in a way that makes it clear the things that we've just um, spoken of. Verse 8. All words are feeble. Man could never utter. The eye could never be satisfied with seeing. And the ear could never be filled with hearing. I think that does a great job of illustrating what we just talked about. There aren't any words that could be spoken. Language itself is incapable. Man can't utter it. The eye can't be satisfied with seeing, and the ear can't be filled with hearing. And by extension, of course, this goes without saying, but man himself can never be satisfied or filled with what he sees and, and what he hears. Okay, um, so what do we learn from this verse? We learn, I'm just going to go over these quickly, but hopefully you already have written some of these down. But the endless cycles are wearisome and unfulfilling. Our bodies are not able to take in or express our surroundings in a satisfying way. We have a built-in desire to be satisfied. This is a part of how God made us. But what we see and hear in the world will never bring us this satisfaction because the world and everything in it is not able to satisfy or fulfill us. Okay. Verse 9. <clears throat> what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. So the being and doing here reference the sun, wind, water, and the entire earth by extension, and also the mouth, eye, ear, and the generations of man by extension. So the sun is always going to be the sun, and the rivers will do what they do, i.e. follow their courses. The way things are and what man does will also continue in its course. So he's spent five to seven talking about these cycles in the earth, and then now he's applying that to man as well. Um, 
And the, I, the phrase, there's nothing new under the sun, just as the wind, the generation that was, will be like the one to come, and the one to come will do what the previous one did. The way things are will not change, and what is done will not change. It will repeat in this fixed way without ceasing. Just as the earth with its cycles and patterns will remain the same, so too will man in his cycles remain the same. Yes. Do you th see from scripture that this is a process that came into being because of the fall and or that it was always there and it became more intense because of the fall and man's inability to you know grasp things and and uh, his sin keeps him from being fulfilled um, outside the Lord so I was just wondering how much of this is because of the fall hmm. um, I don't think we're going to address that because it's a really big theological topic, which oh, okay. is not, Solomon's not addressing that right now. Sorry. No, it's quite all right. I just, that's a good thing to, to look at. And if you find something and you want to share it next week, that's fine. I just, I want to steer away from theological discussions that aren't germane to what Solomon's talking about. Otherwise, we just drift. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, well, yes. Um, yes. Yeah, there you go. This outside the scope of this course. I mean, plus I don't want to just speculate. Um, that's one of the topics that could probably we could debate about for a while. Um, yeah, I just like, had never thought about that before. So right. No, like why do sharks have teeth if there was no death before? You know, were they made after the fall, or did they have sharp teeth? Like I don't know. Yeah. Okay, so how would you summarize verse 9 then? What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Does anyone want to give a stab at trying to summarize that? No? <laughs> kind of tricky. Okay, so my stab at it. I mean, you guys feel free to write it down. Um, I think that was on your other worksheet, but my stab at it would be something like, the cycle continues and nothing changes. The earth remains the same as does man in his cycles. Something like that. JP, do you have a I think it's because we can't create, right? So everything that we do is a revision, a remix of something that's already been, right? Well, I think Solomon does address the why. Uh, but, I mean, it's in a couple of verses. But I, there's what you're saying I don't disagree with. Um, but I, it's interesting. Let's, um, let's table that just for a minute or a few minutes until we get to verse 11, Okay. Um, so let's, let's go on to verse 10 then. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. So this interrogative sentence structure has an implied answer. Anyone want to guess what it is? No? Okay. The, the answer is clear. Like, do you ever hear that? Hey, this is something new. Check this out. Yeah, we hear it all the time, right? It's just, it's a part of what we do. So new and improved, now for the first time ever. Those are just some examples of people saying this. Um, and this indicates that there will always be people claiming to have found something new. There will always be a call to see some new thing, but that we shouldn't be deceived it's already been in the ages before. Um, okay. So this raises the question, why, if things repeat over and over, do people think something is new? I think verse 11 seeks to answer that, where he says, 
Why, why, if things repeat over and over, are there people who say, hey, this is new? Verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So the cycle is bound to repeat because we don't remember lessons learned from the past, nor will our ancestors remember what we've learned. So this verse juxtaposed to verse uh, 9 and 10 functions as an explanation for why the cycle repeats and why one might say this is new. Uh, and again, I think Ginsburg does a good job of tying these together. So I'm just going to read verses 10 and 11. And if you listen to what joins the two sentences together, um, that'll, that would give you an idea of how they're related. Okay, so verse 10. If there be anything of which it is said, behold, this is new, it hath been long ago in the time of old, which was before us. But there is no remembrance of former men, nor will there be any remembrance of future men among those who will live after. So in other words, even though these things have happened, even though they've existed, people still think it's new because they don't remember what came before. Um, and it's kind of a modern phrase that we use is, if you don't know history, you're bound to repeat it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so Kidner, I'm going to read his real quick. Um, page 25 and 26. All this holds up a mirror to the human scene. Like the ocean, our senses are fed and fed, but never filled. And like the wheel of nature, our history is always turned back on itself, failing of its promise. The journey goes on, we never arrive. Under the sun, there is nowhere to make for, nothing finally satisfying or really new. As for pinning our hopes on posterity, in the end, posterity will have lost the faintest memory of us. Here we must stop to clarify two things. Uh, we're only going to talk about one of them. First, on a point of detail, what are we to make of the famous saying, there is nothing new under the sun? How strictly is this meant? Probably our own popular use of it gives the best answer. We exclaim it as a sweeping comment on the human scene, not as a pronouncement about inventions. No one, least of all, coaleth, is going to deny the inventiveness of man. Uh, but the more things change, the more they stay the same, is basically the, the phrase. Okay, um, so what we learn from this is that one generation forgets what the other did before it. This explains why the cycle repeats. It also gives a clue as to how we might avoid this repetition. Which would be what, Donna? Yeah, of doing what your ancestors did before you. Yeah. No? All right. Um, quite all right. Okay, so to review that 8 to 11... Um, or, sorry, for the entire introduction, okay? Verses 2 to 11. What? What do you mean? No, I was saying, do you have an idea of how we might avoid repeating what our ancestors have done? Well, I already did. That's why I asked you the question. But the idea is, if you, if you know and study what people have done before and you're learning the mistakes they made and you learn from those mistakes, then you don't repeat them yourself. That's the idea. Yeah, there you go. Quite all right. Owen? Yep. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, you, I appreciate your point too, Donna, that we don't necessarily learn just because we saw the thing or we heard about it or whatever. 
um, and Owen, yes, that we need, a, that we need the right standard. Um, and we need to compare what we see against God's word to determine, is this something we should actually be doing? Is this something that's good to do? Yep. Um, okay, so to review the whole thing, I came up with three basic lessons. Um, we gain nothing from our work. Uh, we don't last very long. <clears throat> These are things that, that Coaleth brings up to show us how life is a mere breath. Why is life a mere breath? Well, because we don't gain anything from our work, we don't last very long, and we desire to be satisfied and fulfilled, yet our bodies are not capable of this, and the world around us is not capable of satisfying us. And that's essentially what he brings up in the introduction to um, illustrate how life is a mere breath, okay? And as we talked about before, this points us to something that could satisfy us, all right? So with the rest of our time, I'd like to look at the application, okay? And this, if we don't get through it, that's okay. It's on, it's on the back of your uh, worksheet. You know, it's amazing to me that every single person who puts these mics on has an issue with it. It might point to the fact that there's a, a better design needed. Okay. I also... So, okay, let me finish what I was saying. Application is on the back of your worksheet. We're going to try and get through it, but there's a lot there. It's not meant necessarily for us to go through every point here. This really is meant for you to take home and think about and write stuff down. I will get through as much as we can in our time, and hopefully you guys can participate, but this really is meant for you to search your own hearts to see how you could grow from what we've learned, which is after all the point of reading God's word is to grow and mature from it. Okay, so let me read... J. Adams, um, his book called Life Under the Sun. I think he spelled it wrong and then he had to cross it out, but they left it. And, um, okay, so that is page four. All right. And this is talking about worldliness. What is worldliness? Treating life and existence here as having lasting value is the colossal mistake and sin of those who live as if the world, together with its human achievements, is of permanent worth. This belief is the very essence of worldliness. To toil and worry over those matters that pertain to the present order of things as if they were permanent, giving one's life to their pursuit is the supreme folly." It is the Gentile or pagan philosophy of life Jesus spoke against in Matthew, 19, Matthew 6, 19-34. Rather, the task of the God-fearing believer is to hold on to present things loosely while giving himself to God by seeking first his kingdom and seeking to lay up treasures in heaven. Which is, after all, what we've been talking about. Um, and what I hope we can come to think about in our application here, okay? So as we go through this, the goal is going to be to think of some errors in your thinking or behavior that could result if you fail to think rightly in the following areas. And if you look at our areas, they're the three lessons we're supposed to have learned from the introduction, Right? We gain nothing from our work, we don't last very long, and we desire to be satisfied with the things the world can't do it. So that's what we're going to try and do. Um, another way of saying we gain nothing lasting from our toil is we can't take anything with us. Right? We all know you do get something from your work, but no matter what you have, no matter what you build, when you die, that goes to someone else. You can't you get nothing lasting from the work itself, okay? Um, like, where's Solomon's temple? 
He built this wonderful temple he told us about. Yeah, I don't see it. Uh, and his wife, well, anyway. Okay, so we, uh, we, what are some errors that can result from this, if we have this way of thinking, if we don't recognize that we gain nothing lasting? Um, why don't you guys just, we'll take like two minutes and just tell me what, off the cuff, what are some wrong ways of thinking that could result if we aren't viewing this rightly? Makes sense. If we, if, let me phrase it without negatives in there. If we believe that what we gain on this earth has lasting value in terms of what we gain from our work, how might that affect our behavior? Okay. So just get as much as you can, work as hard as you can, don't worry about the consequences. Yeah. Yep, yeah, Owen? Yeah, it causes us to hold on too tightly to things, absolutely, because that's where our value is, right? Okay. We might begin to rely on those things, right? Hey, I have this money or these resources or this stored food or whatever, and that's going to get me through some crazy event. Yes? Well, I hope this is okay. It just seems to me that once we start thinking about things on earth, we start giving our own self-credit for what we do. Uh -huh. And we don't give honor and glory to the Lord working in our lives on our behalf. Yeah. So it's like we give ourselves credit, but we never give God credit for bringing such wonderful things into our lives. That makes it better. Yep. So there's no glory there for him, only for us. Yeah, because in a way, when we think about the world and the things in it without thinking about God, that's exactly what we'd come to. I worked my tail off to get all this stuff. I deserve it. Yeah. And it reminds me of, I was going to try and see this, see if I could find it real quick. Um, the ruler who went out um, in Acts and he's like, oh, look at all these great things my hand has made. Acts 12, um, Herod. So he makes this speech, and the people get all excited, and they, the people are shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. It's not the exact one I was thinking of, but that'll do. Jen? Yeah. My hands have made. It's the, the trick is finding the phrase that you can search on. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay, so I think those are all great, great things to think about um, to avoid wrong ways to, uh, to think that we can avoid. Um, we can begin to re rely on worldly things. We can view life and things in life as too important. We could take the view that terrible things shouldn't happen to us or those we care about. Um, because after all, if life is about getting good things and more things, then the opposite of that is bad things happen to us. We want to avoid that. That's some awful thing that we should not have to endure. So situation one is, that's on your sheet here. We want to help inform, we're going to counsel this hypothetical person, right, who wants to pray for this woman. So this woman, she's in the church. She's in her 30s. She's sick in the hospital, maybe with cancer. And she has a husband and two kids at home. Now, the question is, how can we think rightly about our prayer for these people? And I want to use two verses to inform our thinking before we get started. Um, like, but first, before I read it, 
what are some things, what are, what are some tendencies we have for things we would pray for for this person in that case? Like if this came up right now, I said, oh, I have a friend in another church. She's a believer. She's in the hospital with cancer. She's got a husband and two kids at home. Could you pray for her? And then we pray. What are some things you might be think healing? Okay. What else? What? Not being anxious. Okay. Okay, they'd suffer well. Okay. Sorry. All right. Um, so, and like healing, that she would recover, that it wouldn't be cancer, stuff like that are, are normal, common things that would come up. Okay. Um, so, Matthew 16, 21 to 23, this is when Jesus, well, it says right here. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So similar idea, right? You have some suffering coming up that he's going to have to endure. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This should never happen to you. In other words, you shouldn't have to suffer and these terrible things happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Okay, so based on that verse then, well, and I'll read you another one, um, Mark eight thirty-one to 38. And that should be written on your sheet, too. Um, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous generation, adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Okay, so based on these two verses, what is setting our minds on the things of God in terms of our prayer request? Is it on the healing and the avoidance of suffering? What, what is it? What is it on? Tendency to think it's um, what is His will? Okay. For that person. Sure. What? So seeking to do the Lord's will in whatever the situation is, and maybe not even doing, but someone had said that they would suffer well. I think that was. So I mean that's. That's right. If the Lord's will is for you to suffer, like it was Christ, obviously, then to try and tempt someone away from doing that or feeling that uh, as, as good, then would be what Satan would do. Probably not what we want to do is the idea. We would want to be concerned also for her salvation, for the woman who is going, who may not be saved right now but is facing this death situation so we would be praying for her salvation in the family yeah absolutely um that the lord could use this suffering for for his glory and his good um there is a, a verse somewhere in scripture that talks about the lord working all things for good does anyone know where that is 
Romans 8, 28. Could you read that for Do you have your Bible? Yeah. You know, you have it memorized, Charby? I thought you had it memorized. Isn't that one of your adventure club verses? No. No? Oh, okay. Oh, okay, well, we'll get there eventually. <laughs>Okay, so we at least know that for those who love God, right, and are called according to his purposes, that all things work together for good. Um, So if, for example, let's say this woman is a believer, right, and then if God's going to work all things for good, what might that include? What possible outcomes could that include in her case? Mm-hmm. So what's the goal there? So in our common language, that might be like sanctification. We might be made into the image of Christ, right? So then the outcome of the situation is more that she would grow. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. And yes. Um, But I guess the point there is that the growth comes through the suffering, through the trials. And when we're thinking like the world, we tend to forget that. And we tend to think that the suffering is a bad thing that we shouldn't have to go through as opposed to recognizing that that suffering is a temporary, temporal, earthly thing that could be used by God to grow us spiritually into the image of Christ. Okay, so when we're thinking like God, we're realizing, hey, this suffering could lead to greater glory to God and my growth and maturity. That's a good thing. Okay? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And none of this is meant to say we shouldn't pray for their healing or we shouldn't hope that they get, um, are able to recover and be home with their kids. Absolutely. But none of us would wish that Christ wouldn't have gone to the cross and died. So there also has to be a place where you recognize if God calls you to go and die or someone you care about to go and die... That's not a bad thing, right? That good can come from that. So just, just thinking about Christ, we, none of us would say, hey, I hope Christ doesn't have to die on the cross or suffer. I mean, knowing the outcome, I guess I, I should qualify it, right? Um, but that's an important reminder is that us too, we're call- and right after that, Christ says, take up your cross and follow me. That's the idea in that verse there. He had to go and die on the cross. We too should take up our cross and suffer and be willing to die. Um, okay. Um, so then, how does this worldly or man-centered way of viewing the world lead to us being ashamed of Christ? So in other words if we were to think of the suffering as a bad thing and something we shouldn't have to endure, not be thinking of eternal sanctification qualities that come from the trial, how might that lead us to be ashamed of Christ? Is that too big of a stretch there?
Right. Yep. No, I, I think that's right. And it's good to recognize that's a worldly way of thinking. That's, not, that's Peter saying to Christ, no, 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 don't suffer. That should never happen to you. And Christ saying, no, that's the words of Satan. Right? So, okay, I think we're just about at time. But I do want to encourage you guys again. These questions are meant for you to think through and answer on your own. Lord willing, they lead to growth for you as you think through this. And I'm more than willing to like, if, if say some of you do this and think through it and write some stuff, bring it back and ask questions about it. That's completely fine. We could talk about it. Um, but otherwise, enjoy this and, and please put it to good use. Any, anything before we break uh, and adjourn till next week? No? Okay, so next week, Lord willing, we'll move on and we'll start working on the next section outside of the introduction.